If you're listening to this podcast, I know you're curious because you want to learn new things. I also know you're interested in having your assumptions challenged. So I think you'll like the Great Courses Plus in general, and I think you're especially going to like the course that I'm taking, which is Behavioral Economics When Psychology and Economics Collide. It's kind of about how the assumptions we make about people are usually wrong. The assumptions we make about ourselves are often wrong. In general, we assume ourselves and others to be somewhat rational, and behavioral economics questions that. It makes you question not just how good you are at predicting others' behavior, but how good you are at predicting your own behavior. Like, it turns out that we have uh, an inability to delay gratification that's about on par with rats. But you can take this course or you can take one of thousands on human behavior, history, politics, science, even hobbies like photography and mindfulness meditation. And right now, as one of my listeners, you can enjoy all of those courses for free at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. You'll get a full month of unlimited access to enjoy every single one of these lectures for free. You do have to go to the special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us, usually. This is a Trump-adjusted episode. It's basically a Trump, 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 Trump episode. In the second segment, I'll be sharing the story I wrote for Rolling Stone about my trip up north to the Trump rally there this week. In the first segment, I'm going to talk to Adam Serwer from uh, The Atlantic about his piece that ties in the family separation policy to Trumpism in general. So that's a lot of Trump. And you may have been getting a lot of Trump in general. So uh, now that you've downloaded the episode and listened to at least one ad, you know, I'm good. Uh, You should take care of yourselves. Um, You know, uh, if you need to space this episode out, feel free to do so. Uh, Do listen to the whole thing. And of course, you know, uh, do our sponsors a solid because then you'll be doing us a solid. And uh, as always, rate and review. I'm putting that up first this time because I'm so worried about you having to listen to an entire episode devoted to Trump. I think you can do it, though. And we'll get started right now. I'd like to welcome back to the show Adam Serwer, who was on, um, I guess, a few months ago to talk about his piece, The Nationalist Delusion, which essentially laid out the case that, you know, Trumpism is white nationalism. He's back to discuss Trumpism realized. And I'd like to start uh, with an excerpt. Adam, go ahead. I suspect that what horrifies Americans is not the novelty of Trump's policy, but its familiarity. Americans are fighting a part of themselves they naively thought they had vanquished. From chattel slavery to American Indian schools to convict leasing, child snatching has been a tradition in America since before there was an America. If one is convinced that the parents are not truly human, then the children cannot truly be children, and what should be unthinkable becomes inevitable. The sins of the past are not guardrails. There is nothing to prevent them from being committed again except for the dedication of the living to creating a better world. The people in the past who convinced themselves to do unspeakable things were no less human than you or I. They made their decisions. The only thing that prevents history from repeating itself is making different ones. People who would do this to children would do anything to anyone. Before this is over, they will be called to do worse. It's um, incredibly powerful piece, I think 
It is, of course, a sequel to the other piece you wrote about Trumpism and white nationalism. You know, it's about the child um, separation policy, but I wonder, had you been thinking about this kind of piece before the actual policy came, came into the news? I think the reason I wrote this piece now is because the child separation policy made clear for, I think, a lot of people, it, people started putting it together uh, in a way that they were sort of not willing to do before. Um, I think, you know, when I, one of the things that happened this week is that people started tweeting the nationalist delusion again, in part mm-hmm. because, um, you know, they saw this attitude, this this nationalism that places white people uh, in a hierarchy above all other Americans um, in this policy, uh, you know, because uh, Sessions and, and the Trump administration are uh, prosecuting, you know, essentially misdemeanors uh, at the expense of prosecuting more serious crimes, in part because what they're worried about is not criminals coming, but regular people coming. They, they, they don't want, as the president said on his Twitter feed, they don't want immigrants to change the character of the country as they see it. Uh, and I think that is just and, and the willingness to go so far as to create a policy of systematized child abuse to reach that goal, uh, I think, has made clear for people, you know, how serious they are about that goal in a way that I think before people would just, you know, they didn't want to see it. They didn't want to believe it. And this just really the child separation thing, I think, really puts it together. I was at uh, Trump's rally in Duluth this week and There was, of course, a ton of reporters there, and um, I heard them asking everyone about the child separation policy. And I I made this kind of strategic, maybe self, you know, protective decision to not introduce myself as a reporter to people because I've done that in the past and it's been frightening to the way people respond. And instead, I just kind of introduced myself as like, I'm here from Minneapolis. And I just kind of wanted to see what happened if I just was there. And only one person actually brought up what they called the border thing to me, like unprompted. And um, I pressed him on this and he, he was really vague, which I think is something that this policy requires of people who support it, right? Um, it was the border thing, not child separation, you know, not, not mentioning anything specific about it. And I asked him why it was important, why it was important as to do it as a policy. And he said, well, we can't just let them in. And I was like, why not? Why not? <laughs> And he said, well, imagine, imagine you're having a really nice uh, dinner, say for Thanksgiving, which is actual hypothesized a Thanksgiving dinner at which people came uninvited. That's amazing. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing because I mean, in, in the Thanksgiving dinner, the Americans are the immigrants who are being welcomed by the native inhabitants and and like be, and and survive because of them. So that I mean, someone got the wrong message from Thanksgiving. Yes, I would also go deeper than that, which is even if you take away the kind of mythic part of Thanksgiving, right? Which is it is I mean, this it is idea, mythic, yes, right? Which is this idea that the Indians helped the settlers in some way, which is a story we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about what you know about how we genocide. Yeah. About genocide. We tell ourselves a lot of those. Right. I even like, I actually really like Thanksgiving as a, as a day of thanks idea. You know, it's my favorite holiday. But the thing you're supposed to do is be, when things are bountiful, you give it away. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's a very, I mean, it's a tradition on Thanksgiving <laughs> that a lot of people, you know, spend part of that time helping people who are hungry. 
I mean, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on. What was weird about it is he actually like went on for a bit. It, like he had this whole like thing about mashed potatoes and you'd have to share them and how they might use your bathroom and you'd have to hope that they flushed. It was like, it went on for a bit. Sounds terrible. Um, I mean, it, who, well, who it would was, ever invite someone to their house and let them use their bathroom? And I have to say the other thing that happened at this rally when people did talk about uh, the child separation policy is that they all were like, well, it's fixed now. Are you concerned about the fact that the administration caved in the way that it did and the kind of like, okay, well, never mind, our bad that they sent out? I'm not sure that caved is the right word. They recognized they had a serious public relations problem, and then they worked to alleviate the public relations problem. Um, I don't know that the executive order really materially changes anything, and I'm not sure that the extent to it does, whether it just replaces a bad policy with an even worse policy. Uh, and I think that, that that that's the issue. I mean, if we, we just end up with, you know, 40,000 more people in detention um, and we're just caging whole families together, I'm not sure that that's uh, an improvement uh, over, you know, child separation. I mean, I think both of those are, are, are actually quite bad. I think, you know, the question that people really should be asking themselves is, should we be detaining people who are only guilty of misdemeanor or legal entry at all. I mean, most of these people show up for their hearings uh, when they're scheduled. They're not a, a danger to public safety uh, for the most part. And, you know, it, it's just not, it's it's something that we spend, uh, the United States spends a lot of money and resources on instead of spending them on other things. Uh, so, you know, I think the question is really, you know, is this an ideal policy? Is this what people want to do? It's obviously what the Trump administration wants to do because they have a larger ideological goal in mind. But I don't know that the average American is really concerned about prosecuting every misdemeanor or legal entry case instead of people who might actually be a danger to, to the public. I think one of the things that's powerful about your piece is it is it does kind of trace the through line in, in Trumpism to, to this, to, to this child separation policy and the calculated cruelty of it. Are you concerned that the absence of this really visceral cruelty will cause those people who manage to find a shred of conscience to lose it again? So I think it, it is very possible that having put the, the child separation issue out of sight, that they may be able to put it out of people's minds. Uh, I think the operative example here is Puerto Rico, where after Hurricane Maria, even though it caused a, a disaster of 9-11 proportions in terms of deaths, at least according to the latest estimates, uh, people were largely able to sort of, uh, people in the United States were largely, uh, you know, able to avoid it and put it out of their minds to the point where, you know, I saw people saying, uh, you know, someday soon there's going to be a disaster that Trump didn't start and he's going to deal with it poorly. And, you know, the they didn't actually remember that Maria and Puerto Rico happened. So I, I do think that it's possible that when the images are out of the way, and I think the Trump administration is gambling that, on this, that when the images are out of the way, people aren't going to care as much. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if this has permanently damaged their standing in some way that is is going to be lasting at least until the midterms. I, I, I don't know. I think it's hard to tell. But I do think that the Trump administration at least is hoping that having solved their or having, or they think they've solved their PR problem, they will no longer have a policy problem. I, I, I don't know if it's true, but it, it's possible. When it comes to bra shopping, 
the most important thing is finding the right fit. That seems kind of obvious. But it doesn't matter how pretty a bra is if it doesn't fit right. And there is nothing worse than wearing a bra that cuts and digs, a bra you cannot wait to rip off as soon as you get home. That actually happened to me last night. I was at that Trump rally for seven hours and I was uncomfortable the entire time, not just because of the people I was around. Anyway, I love Third Love. They use thousands of real women's measurements, people of all shapes and sizes, uh, to create bras with breast size and shape in mind so they fit perfectly and feel better. Plus, their simple fit finder quiz makes it easy to figure out the right size and style for you in less than a minute. I like their bras that are just sort of your straightforward comfy bras. They have a couple t-shirt bras. Um, And I also love their really pretty bras, which also fit well. But um, I think I've talked about before, they have a couple of racer back bras that are kind of designed to show. Um, And in these summer months, if you want to wear a strappy top, it's always nice to have a pretty bra underneath just in case it shows. And since all of this is done online, by the way, you can forget sifting through, you know, racks of bras. Uh, You don't have to go into a uh, changing room uh, with a person who has a tape measure and cold hands. You just find your fit and order and try it on at home. And if you don't love your bra, returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off their first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find that perfect fitting and very pretty bra. Again, 15% off your first purchase. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. Obviously, there's, I guess, this really visceral reaction to cruelty to children, right? Like that is the thing that can um, apparently upset even like white suburban women. If you figure out that that's the only thing that people get mad about, there's a lot short of that you can still do. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) It's true that maybe nothing looks as bad as children, um, you know, ripped out of their mother's arms. How do you make people see that all that other stuff is really cruel too and that stopping just short of the most obvious cruelty 
isn't much of an improvement. I mean, I, well, look, I guess I'm, I'm asking you a tactical question, but like, right. I mean, I don't, I, I'm not a political strategist, so I right. don't know how to answer that question. But I will say that, you know, this was also true during abolition. The abolitionists focus very heavily on the family separation issue, in part because it was something that could cut through, you know, the the, the strong uh, for a lot of people the strongest walls that they had put up against recognized the, recognizing the humanity of slave people. It's not a coincidence that this family issue has has so much resonance precisely because, you know, everybody has families, everybody has people they love, and everybody has been a kid and had that feeling of, like, not knowing where your mom or your dad is or or your caregiver and freaking out. Um, so so it, almost everybody can relate to that visceral feeling. And it, it, it's always been the case, even when the United States had— you know, had a policy of of being able to own people as property that this family issue was something that could cut through that. Now, I'm not certain to what extent these stories will resonate uh, when they're not focused on children. One theory that I have is that as long as people are feeling very prosperous economically, they're not going to worry about stuff like this if it doesn't affect them. Um, and maybe that's a, you know, like I said, that's a bleak observation, but I think it's it's certainly possible that people will think, well, you know, I'm making a little more money. I'm, I'm finding it easier to afford my bills, pay my rent. Uh, and, you know, that other stuff, you know, that's not my problem. That's sort of the, the counter, you know, argument to the idea that these people are economically anxious. What you're putting forward makes sense to me, too, but it's sort of saying, People um, will be racist if uh, you make them economically anxious and make them want to keep what little they have. But I also think you're right. Yeah, there's also an argument that people will allow racism or cruelty to happen if they have stuff. It's almost like just racism's part of the just built in there that maybe economics isn't actually part of part of the problem at all. As an ideology, you know, racism allows you to rationalize both your success and your failure. Um, you know, you could tell yourself that you got where you are because you're better than everyone else and anybody who's not there is uh, simply not as good as you. And if you're not doing as well, you can say it's because, you know, these people are taking away stuff that should be yours uh, and keeping it for themselves. Um, you know, it, 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 it works no matter what, which is one of the reasons why the economic anxiety argument never really uh, persuaded me. I just struggle with how to make people care having been among people who seem not to care. Like I'm just flummoxed. Like these are not, you know, person to person, horrible people. Well, I just, I'll just say, you know, I think you're, you're getting a a sort of general riddle, which is how ordinary people can be cruel. And And the truth is, is that if ordinary people couldn't be cruel, if only monsters could be cruel, then, you know, none of the worst things in history would ever have happened. Um, you know, uh, if you look at if you've ever read Twelve Years a Slave, which is Solomon Northup's memoir, uh, the man who uh, you know in the 1830s was a free black man who was kidnapped and sold into slavery for twelve years. Um, he's first of all, if you read the book, he's it just the most generous human being, far more generous than I would be. But he mentions that the slave master. He says some, he writes something like the slave master is not to blame uh, for his ignorance because he is simply you know he he, he is. Essentially, internalized the system that he grew up in and is incapable of thinking past it. And I think, you know, part of what's so frightening to me about what's happening now is we have all this wisdom of history 
um, and we're still being cruel. So I, I don't really know what the answer is. I think, you know, when I write, I don't write because I'm hoping to convince cruel people not to be cruel. I'm only writing, you know, because I, I mean, this may, I don't want this to sound conceited or whatever, but I'm writing down what I think is the truth so that when people look back on this, there's, they can find something that says, yes, this is what was happening. And people knew that this is what was happening. And it wasn't that everybody thought that this was a good idea. And that's why they did it. Uh, you know, one of the, the the excuses for slavery that bothers me the most is they say things like, um, you know, uh, uh, well, people didn't know any better. No, people knew better. Uh, the slaves knew better, for example. And mm-hmm. I don't want people to be able to say the same thing uh, when they look back at the Trump era and they ask themselves how this could have happened. You know, that term um, animal came up when I was talking to my uh, Thanksgiving um, Day dinner host. A uh, friend, um, and he did the. He talked, started talking about the MS thirteen and um, how you know liberals objected to Trump calling them animals. And I, I said, well, actually, I I object to that too. And he started to go on this path of like telling me all the bad things that they did. But what I where I, where I land on that is that like you know you just shouldn't dehumanize people, and then in some ways like calling someone an animal takes away the agency of of that person. To call MS-13 animals means that they're not making the choice to do bad things and that, you know, everyone has a choice to be good or bad. And this seemed to stump that guy, that it might be a way of talking about people as though they had choices. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what he in particular was thinking, but I, I will say that, you know, as I argued in my piece, I really think uh, the the strategy of calling MS-13 animals, it, he's not really talking about MS-13. He's calling MS-13 animals so that when other undocumented immigrants come to the United States, he can say, well, they're MS-13 and they're animals and therefore we don't have to respect any rights uh, that they might have. Um, and he did the same thing with Syrian refugees. He said, oh, they, they might be ISIS, so we can't take them because they might all be terrorists. And his defenders always say, oh, well, he's only talking about this small group of people that is clearly despicable, but that's not true. I mean, the, the strategy is to talk about that small group and then say that anybody from the large group could be part of the small group um, which justifies any treatment uh, that Trump might want to give them. And I think that, I mean, that is an extraordinarily cynical way of dealing not just with public policy, but 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 with politics, right? To just assume that people's um, frightened uh, imaginations about those who are different are just going to do the work. And it's unfortunate to say that Trump has not lost gambling on that so far. Uh, maybe he will in the future. I don't know. Um, but part of the reason he hasn't lost gambling on it is that people tell themselves that it's okay or that it's not happening or they look away, um, which is, I think, you know, what you've sort of seen with how people have dealt with the child separation policy who, who support Trump. They've, they've told themselves, oh, you know, this is great for the kids or the policy doesn't even exist or, you know, it's required. But they, want, they have to figure out some way to make it all right because they know it's wrong. Uh, and, and the human brain is very good at doing that. You know, um, you tied this into this policy into Jeff Sessions in general, um, kind of choosing to uh, enforce laws that he doesn't necessarily have to enforce, um, uh, choosing to just go on the side of cruelty uh, when you when you don't have to. Are you aware of the other kinds of policies where this is happening, the other areas where this is happening that aren't on the front page right now? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, cruelty has generally been the model for the Trump administration as far as policy approaches are concerned when it particularly when it comes to people of color i mean i think the 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 uh, the first example was obviously the travel ban which was done w- without regard for you know people who who had aided the united states abroad as interpreters and and given assistance to the military and things like that who are suddenly barred from coming to the united states um and you see it in the the spirit of the muslim ban in general and in its implementation um i think the spirit of cruelty is really animated the immigration enforcement arm of the administration, which I think I think the, the, the sort of rank and file um, ICE and CPB agents really understand that they have kind of a license to um, detain pretty much anybody who is brown and has a has a Latino name, um, you know, all, and demand they prove that they're citizens of the United States. I think you see it with the uh, the Trump administration and Sessions pulling back from the oversight of local police departments. I mean, we've seen mm-hmm. all these in the past few years, we've seen so many examples of police abusing their authority and how that they treat minorities. And the Obama administration made it a priority to ensure that police are respecting the Constitution when they are enforcing the law. And Sessions has, has even tried to withdraw from consent decrees that police departments have agreed to in order to bring their policing in line with the Constitution. Um, you can see it in Sessions, uh, you know, reversal of the Obama order on no longer using private prisons, which, you know, are infamous for abuses. You can see it in his effort to reinvigorate the drug war and and, and urge prosecutors to seek maximum penalties. And I think Trump articulated this himself on the campaign trail. He was always saying, we're going to have to do things, you know, that, that that are terrible and that we haven't done before to deal with these problems. And he'd always he'd talk about killing the families of suspected terrorists and he'd talk about torturing people. And, you know, in general, uh, I think that Trump sees cruelty as a virtue. He sees it as strength. Um, and uh, I think that Jeff Sessions sees it as a um, as a justifiable tool in an arsenal for achieving his ideological goals. And I think you see that uh, across the board with how the Trump administration deals with things. The Sun Basket has been rated the number one meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, that whole 31, and more. But what matters to me about Sunbasket is that it helps me eat healthier. It makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. And I'll be honest, I have some experience, but I don't particularly enjoy cooking after a long day. And it's easy to pick up the phone and order. It is so easy. And I admit we do it all the time, but it is almost as easy. If I can just get over the hump to go to the refrigerator and open it up, Sunbasket makes making healthy, delicious food incredibly simple. Everything's pre-measured, pre-sorted. And the food is really great. Uh, There's seared albacore tuna with green beans and soft cooked eggs. Uh, There is, um, they do kebabs. You can cook on the grill if you have one. Uh, There was a turkey chili the other night. We've been having an unusually cold summer here in Minneapolis. And I loved having that chili, like so easy and ready to go. So again, paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, family options, and more. And they work with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafoods. Everything is pre-measured, as I said, and everything's about ready in about 30 minutes or less. 
there's something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle. So go to sunbasket.com slash friends today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash friends for $35 off your first order. sunbasket.com slash friends. I wonder if one thing to think about for people that hope that the nation's attention can stay focused on some of these abuses. I wonder if one thing to consider is how we can widen uh, the scope of what's considered family separation. Uh, I think, you know, a thing you heard a lot from administration defenders in talking about family separation at the border was if you commit a crime in the U.S., uh, you're going to have to go to jail no matter what, and you'll be separated from your family that way. Now, there's a lot of ways that that metaphor breaks down in terms of how it's applied in an everyday way and how it's applied at the border. And in the way we normally think about someone being arrested for a crime uh, in America, their children are not also sent to jail, right? right. We, one- we, we don't have toddler jail for kids whose parents are accused of crimes. Right. That's one one huge difference. Um, but um, we, especially if you're poor and a, and a person of color and you're accused of a crime and arrested for a crime, uh, you are separated from your family in a way that you aren't if you're someone with better means. You know, um, you are your 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 family will suffer in a way that they you won't if you're Paul Manafort. You know, Paul Manafort is maybe the only like really good example we can show of someone like of, of people getting outraged on the right <laughs> for someone going to actually having to go to jail because um, they either they screwed up or they couldn't afford their bond. Right. It's, well, I think it's actually more than that. Um, Republicans seem to have decided that zero tolerance is completely appropriate for dealing with immigrants, but they bristle at the um, regular operations, the regular punitive operations of law enforcement when they are applied to people that they like. So for mm-hmm. Paul Manafort, everybody's like, this is such harsh treatment. I can't believe they're doing this. And I was like, this is how the prosecutorial system actually works. This is how it works for everyone who comes into it, 99.9% of whom don't have Paul Manafort's resources. So if they think this is coercive, well, this is how the system works. Uh, and it's there's this great irony where on the one hand, they're calling uh, on Jeff Sessions to bring the hammer down. And on the other hand, they're, you know, clutching their pearls in horror at watching this sort of regular operation of the legal system deal with someone like Paul Manafort. Yeah, I agree. And I also think all the time of how, you know, basically it's just financial crimes versus crimes that a poor person might commit um, that are treated differently, right? Uh, you know, Elizabeth uh, Holmes from Theranos is still out there walking around, as far as I know. Um, and she committed some pretty serious crimes or Sorry, allegedly, like there's there's stuff going on there, millions and millions of dollars um, misappropriated. Uh, and I also think of it when people ever say that you shouldn't be able to get welfare um, if you've committed a crime or you should have to take a drug test. Um, I wonder how many people would have would would want to have to take a drug test to get their you know mortgage looked at. Um, if they, you know, were to get a small business association loan. Um, well, I'll say, I'll say a couple of things about it. I mean, one, one thing that's insane about the welfare thing is, is you're saying you shouldn't get welfare if you commit a crime, but then you're insisting on detention for anybody who, 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 who commits misdemeanor illegal entry. Well, guess what, you know, guess what happens? They, they have to feed and house those people and it costs a lot of money rather than letting them just come here and try to get a job and support themselves. The other thing is that, you know, imagine zero tolerance for lying to Congress. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, that, 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 that would be a pretty awkward situation for Jeff Sessions, who on multiple occasions has told things under oath, said things under oath to Congress that turned out not to be true. 
or for Jared Kushner, whose disclosure forms have proven to be inaccurate over and over and over again. I mean, if, if we, if, we actually wouldn't want to, I mean, we, a lot of the people who support zero tolerance in the case of immigrants who are fleeing situations that any human being would flee uh, do not support zero tolerance when it applies to people they consider like them or people that they like. Uh, and I think that says a lot about whether or not the policy of uh, a policy of zero tolerance makes sense. That is where we're going to have to end it. Do you want to add anything? Uh, no, I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much for having me on again. Uh, we didn't get to talk about our cats this time either, but maybe next oh, time or pets this right. time either. Well, you have a new cat, right? Is this this new cat is going to be yours? Um, no, this is a cat that I am fostering uh, while I find her a home because I can't have too many cats in my house. But oh, there's no such, well. <laughs> but she's a very sweet cat uh, and I'm okay. going to find her a good home. Okay, I'm sure you're going to tweet about it. Um, and, uh, you know, the nice thing about not talking about our, our pets um, at length uh, in every conversation we have is that it always puts uh, another conversation between us on the calendar. So <laughs> again, just thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for having me. Havenly is the most delightful way to design spaces in your home for any budget. Partner with an interior designer to create a beautiful design based on your unique style and space. You can then buy what you love directly through Havenly's platform with access to hundreds of retailers and guaranteed best prices. With summer on the way, isn't it time to see how a Havenly interior designer would decorate your home? And you know what? It's just in time for the summer parties you might be having with new people coming into your space. You can have a new space to show these new people. They take all of the hassle out of designing. They've helped more than 10,000 customers and starting at just $79 per room, working with a Havenly designer will make decorating your living space your easiest, most delightful summer project because everyone deserves a beautiful living space. Start by taking the free Havenly style quiz. It is a fun way to learn your unique design style. And it helps Havenly match you up with the perfect designer to put together the perfect room. Turn that Pinterest board into reality. Try Havenly today by visiting havenly.com slash friends and you will get 25% off your design package. That's Havenly, H-A-V-E-N-L-Y.com slash friends for 25% off your design package. Havenly.com slash friends. As I mentioned to Adam, I went up to Duluth this week to see Trump speak to a crowd of, oh, um, three or 4,000, I think it was. And I got back safe. Uh, and unfortunately, I got back without much audio because I had to enter the arena with the ticket holders. Shockingly, I was not on the approved press list. So I don't have any audio for you, but I do have a story to tell. And I'm just going to tell you the story that I wrote in my column Rolling Stone. This is a first for me to just kind of do a reading, but I think it'll work. Uh, You know how to let me know if it doesn't. Uh, And of course, we will be bringing back listener questions for future episodes. So send them our way along with any comments or criticism as helpfully phrased as possible, if you can manage it. Uh, the email address for the show is with friends like pod at gmail.com. Again, with friends like pod at gmail.com. And with that, well, here's what happened to me in Duluth. 
Minnesota's lonely island of electoral blue in the midst of Donald Trump's upper Midwest Republican bloodbath was on the minds of nearly everyone inside Duluth's Amsoil Arena Wednesday night. Every speaker, including President Trump, referred to it, though perhaps no one quite as dramatically as state GOP chairwoman Jennifer Carnahan, who warned the thousands in attendance about a red tsunami rolling across Lake Superior which I guess you can just add to the list of greasy Wisconsin imports. Trump does not tend to visit states he cannot in some way claim as his, blue states that fail to jive with his hoary recitation of election night. If you're wondering why the president came to Minnesota anyway, that's because Trump did come within just a couple percentage points of taking the state. And of course, that's what he reminded the crowd. And if you're wondering why Trump came to Duluth, That's because Duluth is a reverse oasis in a place known for its natural beauty, good health outcomes, relatively low crime, and high standard of living. Like the more prosperous areas of Minnesota, Duluth is strikingly white. Look deeper than skin and you'll find Duluth is a struggling post-manufacturing cipher with the highest drug overdose rate in the state. U.S. Steel closed its gigantic Morgan Park plant in 1981, causing a slow cascade of desolation that stilled the concrete and hardboard plants and emptied out the grain elevators. Today, the small city of 80,000 scrapes by on tourism and as a port. There's a paper plant that had been on the verge of closing for 10 years. Duluth has a 21% poverty rate that would rank it among the most desperate counties in West Virginia and a per capita income just below that of Wheeling. Lake Superior's merciless beauty crashes up against a town whose shoreside skyline is dominated by stolid, brutalist, mid-century relics and precarious-seeming industrial shipping contraptions, rusty and mostly silent. Downtown, every surface is covered with a thin layer of grime. It is, in other words, potential Trump country. It should be very clear here. Duluth itself voted for Hillary by about 60-40. As you move out of the city center, the votes and the counties turn more and more red. There was a protest against Trump at City Hall that appeared to be super vibrant and have its own sort of joy. And whoever filled that arena, whether it was people from Duluth or from the outlying towns, well, they were pretty pumped to be there. I can't believe he's here in Duluth, one woman at the rally told me. When I asked another if she'd been to any other rallies, she thought for a moment and said, Reagan, when I was little. Another gentleman told me he'd seen Bush. Unlike other parts of official Trump country, Duluth hasn't received the disproportionate attention that comes with strategic, electoral, or even symbolic import. There haven't been any deep dives into the local psyche by national reporters, and it is far enough afield from any normal campaign trail not to get much flyover press. The fans gathered to see Trump Wednesday night did not inspect him with the knowledgeable eyes of early voting Iowans or give off the jaded air of much pandered to Rust Belters. They weren't even especially practiced Trump fans. They fidgeted through the four hours between the doors opening and Trump appearing on stage like teeny boppers waiting for a boy band, trading theories on what he'd say. I think he'll explain the whole border thing, 
one guy told me with infinite optimism. That was the only time someone brought up, without prompting, the fact that American law enforcement was keeping children in cages while we shifted around in place to the soundtrack of someone's wedding reception. While they played, don't stop believing, say you, say me, and rolling in the deep. When I pressed this optimist on what he expected to hear, he backpedaled to an even broader statement. Well, we have to do something. Why? We can't just keep letting people in. That would be like having a big, fancy Thanksgiving dinner planned and then the whole neighborhood deciding they could just come over, just barge in and sit at the table. There wouldn't be enough food and they might trash your place and they might use your toilet. You'd have to hope they flushed. He went on in that vein for a while while I stayed hung up on how smoothly he'd perverted Thanksgiving into a parable about not sharing. Later, Trump would conclude his speech by embroidering on the myth of brave Minnesota settlers enduring harsh winters and relying only on each other, almost as if no one was here before them either. Trump did not spend too much time on the whole border thing, much less explain it. What he did say may wind up being one of the most accidentally honest statements of the night. We're going to keep families together, but the border is going to be as tough as it's ever been. Put another way. However they change the treatment of families, the level of cruelty will be continuous. I've been to Trump rallies before that felt dark with rage. What was disconcerting about the one in Duluth was its giddy weightlessness. Even Trump seemed unburdened, his stream of consciousness not eddying too much in dangerous, petty grievances like the Mueller investigation— but rather swirling in more grand existential loops, like in this riff about elites. You ever notice they always call the other side the elite? The elite. Why are they elite? I have a much better apartment than they do. I'm smarter than they are. I'm richer than they are. I became president and they didn't. The crowd whooped and shared glee at that, although they don't share his good fortune. They knew their lines, though. Lock her up and build the wall and CNN sucks all rang out at the appropriate cues. When Trump indicated a pause for laughter, it is hard to call anything he says a joke. They delivered the syllables with disciplined crispness, like we're on the set of a studio in Burbank, not in a musty arena named for a small-time lubricant manufacturer. Then again, there is the Amsoil slogan. First, in synthetics. By the time Trump reached the end of his speech, it felt familiar, even if you hadn't heard it before. The phrases had the too neat, predictable parallelism of a jingle. We will never give in. We will never give up. We will never stop fighting for our flag or our freedom. We are one people and one family and one nation under God. The last lines were chanted out in half unison, half hum. The way you might mumble vamp through the verse of Sweet Caroline, only to land with ecstasy at the chorus. We will make America safe again. We will make America strong again. We will make America great again. I think that's the way the end of democracy sounds. People so eager to join a chant, they do it before they know all the words. There are two domestic violence shelters in the shadow of the Amsoil Arena. When I stopped in one the afternoon of the rally, 
The mildly harried woman manning the desk behind the bulletproof glass did not need to tell me that they were very busy. A string of women were buzzed in and out of the security door in the 15 minutes that I visited. Someone was picking up a set of dishes. Another wanted to know about the free dental clinic. Someone was asking if her advocate was in. She needed to know if their straining order had come through. The woman who worked there told me the beds at the shelter were always full and that they get as many as 12 to 14 referrals a night. She guessed the other shelter had about the same. That seemed like an impossibly high number for a town not much bigger than the Twin Cities suburb of Bloomington. But I checked the city's crime statistics. It's an imperfect measure since referrals don't necessarily come from the police or involved in arrest. But still, in 2016 in Duluth, there were over 900 arrests for what Minnesota terms violence against families slash children. There were 84 such arrests in Bloomington. I asked the woman at the center what she thought of the scene at the border. Did she think it was fair to be paying so much attention to that, given what she was dealing with? Did she think what Trump was doing to those families was abuse? She looked at me gravely. Trauma is trauma, she said. That's it for the show. I hope you are taking good care of yourself. If you are able, try to take good care of someone else. And we will be back next week.